pastor here at Third Presbyterian Church. Third Pres has been a part of the downtown Birmingham community since 1884, and we still today hold to the historic, classic Christian faith. We're glad you've been watching, but we would love to have you join us one Sunday in person. Please see our website for our Sunday morning service times, and I hope to meet you soon. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning, which comes from Romans chapter 6, page number 942 in your pew Bibles. And while you're turning there, the children at this time are free to be dismissed for the children's Bible lesson. Romans chapter 6, be reading this morning verses 1 through 14, sermon number 27 in this series working our way through the book of Romans. Hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Lord, please open our eyes now that we might behold wonderful things from this your word. We pray through Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we sang as a closing hymn after the sermon one of my favorite hymns, uh, which is Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness. And we sang it because it fit with the sermon where I was speaking about imputation and federal headship. In particular, on imputation, I introduce you to the idea of double imputation. Uh, Inversion is actually sort of a technical, I guess, mathematical way of saying it. And it's the idea that our sin is put on Jesus and his righteousness is put on us. Those two things happening. Well, this week, we've also got sort of a, a double way of looking at salvation that we have through Christ. Um, there are two things to note. Sin makes us all guilty. 
Now, you probably are not surprised by that idea, and it's certainly something that Paul has been teaching in the book of Romans. But not only does sin make us guilty, sin makes us powerless. In the sense of we just don't have the ability to overcome our sin. In the, the, the way it's phrased here, in, in, uh, where we just read in Romans 6, we are enslaved to sin. And so this morning at the end, Lord willing, if we make it there, uh, to the end of this sermon, we'll sing as a closing hymn, um, uh, the Rock of Ages. And in Rock of Ages, there is this powerful phrase that speaks to this. Cleanse me from it it's, and it's talking about sin there, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Romans chapter 6 gets into this second aspect of life as a Christian. The power to walk in newness of life. And Paul wants his readers here to know that the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ is not only a deliverance from the guilt of sin, but it's a deliverance from the power of sin. And that's, that's what all this was about that we were just reading. The gospel, it not only makes us clean, it makes us new. Now, just to clarify when we say the gospel, because uh, I've said over and over in these weeks preaching through Romans, uh, the theme of Romans that the, is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, what is the gospel? People, you ask people, what, is, what does it mean to, when, when we say the gospel? What does that mean? People say, well, it means truth, right? Well, uh, what I'm getting ready to say the gospel is is certainly true, but that's not, not what it means. We probably get that idea because we say, well, that's the gospel truth. It's kind of like saying, well, that's the true truth. No, the gospel means good news. And the good news is that Jesus is Lord. Um, you, you know, trying to keep in step with what the way Paul's been describing it in Romans, the gospel is your works don't have anything to do with you being made right with God. They have nothing to do with it. You're made right with God by right with God by faith alone. You're, you, the, the way you have heaven as your eternal, eternal home is not because you your good deeds outweigh your bad, but it's faith alone. And this is what Paul has been teaching, the gospel in Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5. Now, then, in chapter 6, it's perfectly logical that this first verse would be this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may, may abound? I mean, you would expect that kind of question to be asked when someone says, being made right with God doesn't have anything to do with your performance, with your obedience, with you keeping rituals and, and religious ceremonies. Now, if we're honest, we will admit that we're usually more excited when we learn about a serial murderer who comes to Christ than we are someone who was raised in a Christian home coming to Christ. We, we love that kind of testimony. Why? Because we would say, well, it, it just so much magnifies the grace of God. And indeed it does. It's, it's natural that we would think that. Now, we're forgetting, and it sort of presumes that the grace of God is not at work uh, from infancy as you're raised in a Christian home. It's kind of a sermon for a different time. But if we're, again, if we're really honest, we would admit we love those testimonies of that, of that really wild-eyed you know, atheist who turns to God and and comes to faith, it magnifies the grace of God in, in wonderful ways. And so it's just natural then that we would see this question. 
we probably ought to just keep sinning then. If the way to see God's grace in wonderful ways is through, is through sin, well then let's just sin away. Let's go for it. Someone has said that if you explain the gospel and people don't ask this type of question, then you didn't explain it very well. If you didn't uh, go over and teach the fact clearly enough that there's your, your salvation has nothing to do with your works, your performance, your obedience, then you didn't do a very good job of explaining it because this would be the natural question that people would ask. So Paul, after Paul's explanation here, the question is, really, Paul? So you're trying to tell me that God's grace looks better uh, the more we sin, the more sin is present? Well, then we just ought to encourage people to sin, right? Matter of fact, historically, that's been one of the primary objections to this Protestant doctrine of salvation uh, and justification by grace alone, faith alone, and not our works. People would would say, well, that's going to lead to immoral lives. That's been the historical objection. People will just go out and they'll just live any old way they want. If if you're saying the way you live doesn't uh, doesn't um, uh, make you right with God, then they'll they'll just they'll go to town. You know, this this will be bad. You can't teach that called antinomianism which is sort of the theological term antinomianism anti meaning against nomos greek word uh, for law against the law so this idea that <clears throat> that that could that could be there um, very naturally is a disregard for the law of god and you know it seeps into all of our thinking i mean haven't you probably at some point in your life said Ah, no big deal. God will forgive me. <laughs> That's kind of an antinomianism slipping in into the way we think. Ah, it's no big deal. I'll, I can do that. The Lord will forgive me. Paul says, no. That's not the way this works. It's not the way any of this works at all. He's saying here, the gospel is good news that your guilt is removed and your powerlessness over sin is removed as well. So let me run through quickly three uh, points here that we learn from this passage. First of all, deliverance from the power of sin. It's possible because of our union with the crucified Christ. Deliverance from the power of sin is possible because of our union with the crucified Christ. At the moment of the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection... The power of sin in our lives is dethroned. It's broken. It is removed. That's what we see here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No way. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. Paul doesn't say here, because of that union with Christ, you shouldn't sin. He says here, you can't sin. I I tried to take uh, sort of a modern version and just my own personal words and and tried to to sort of write it up myself, and this is the way I put it. So do you think we should continue, sort of, again, paraphrasing these first few verses. So do you think we should continue sinning that... God will give us more and more grace? Of course not. As a matter of fact, you can't continue sinning because our old sinful life ended. It's dead. 
Did you forget that your baptism signifies your being united to Christ? That means that what happened to Jesus happened to you. When Christ died, you died. When he defeated sin, you defeated sin. People who have died to sin can't continue to live in sin. When I was in college, um, I was involved in campus outreach at Samford and one of the things that our discipleship group did at least once we were probably memorizing Galatians 2.20 at the time I've been crucified with Christ it's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me uh, maybe we were doing a study in Romans chapter 6 I don't exactly remember but I remember what we did and we all our, our small group we went to a cemetery and we kind of broke up for an hour and we just roamed around the seminary and we had seminary the cemetery <laughs> Freudian slip there, right? Um, we, we roamed around the cemetery and we, um, uh, we had one assignment and that was to make observations about dead people. And it was to, to think about this idea right here. Dead people don't sin. You know, your loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord, they're not sinning anymore. That's the idea here. We... We can't continue to live in sin because in Christ we have died to sin. Why can't people who have died to sin continue to live in sin? Because of another theological topic called regeneration. I, I should have I, I thought about it this morning about 7 o'clock when I was just reading through my notes real quick. And it's like, all right, I should have spent more time talking about regeneration. <laughs> but this, that's what this is right here. This, this, this passage is a, uh, under a theological concept called regeneration, which means as a, when you become a Christian, you, you come to Christ, you get a new nature. You get a new power. And you even hear it in that word, regeneration. You know, when a tornado comes through or you live on the Gulf Coast and the hurricane hits, what, are you, what do you hope you have at your house? A generator so that you can have power. And that's what's happening here. That's why it's a, a theological concept called regeneration. New spirit, new power, new nature. The way John says it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Born of God. Then a lifestyle, a pattern of sin uh, is dethroned. It's no longer what rules in your life. Yes, Christians still sin. But they don't make a practice of sinning. Yes, Christians still sin, but they're not enslaved to sin. The way John Murray says it in his great little book on um, salvation called Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, he writes it this way. Sin has, uh, sin has not yet been destroyed in us. Therefore, we have to strive to kill it and to rid it from our thinking and speaking and acting. It's not yet been destroyed Therefore, we have to strive to kill it. And then he says this. Every Christian knows this, but the mastery or domination of sin has been broken. Christians often forget this. You know, there is a very big difference between sin that survives and sin that reigns. There's a big difference between Sin living in us and 
us living in sin. Again, the way Murray says it, it is one thing for the enemy to occupy the capital. It is another for defeated enemies to mount rear guard and harassing actions against the victors. And that is sin in a Christian's life. A defeated foe, it cannot win, but it won't surrender either. By its very nature, by its very nature, salvation will enable us to die to sin. Why do I say by its very nature? Because of this idea of regeneration. You're united to Christ. You are regenerated. You have this new power. And essentially, that lifestyle is going to come out. It's going to express itself. If you're not seeing that, that regeneration, that new lifestyle express itself, then you're not regenerated. You don't have the new nature. You don't have the spirit. Probably, especially if you're here this morning, you're, you're really a nice person. Do a lot of good things in the world. But deliverance from the power of sin is what we're talking about here. And it's possible when we're united to the crucified Christ. And then second, deliverance from the power of sin is possible because of our union with the resurrected Christ. It's possible because of our union with the crucified Christ. It's possible because of our union with the resurrected Christ. In other words, not only have we died with Christ, we have been raised with Him as well. So number one, point number one really was about union with Christ and how that makes us dead to sin. This point makes us, talking again about union with Christ, how it makes us alive in God. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And he continues through uh, verse 11 there. Again, this union with Christ, the resurrected Christ, makes us alive in Him. <clears throat> Let me say it, make the statement, and, and then ex- make a statement, and then explain it. The statement is this: there is no bifurcated Christian life. There is no such thing as a bifurcated Christian life. In other words, <clears throat> there's no such thing as a carnal Christian, where well, you're a Christian, but you're just you don't don't really live like it. Now, there's a sense in which every day we get a little bit carnal at times. <laughs> But we, we turn to the Lord, we repent of it, we hate it, and we, and, we, and we make progress. But there are some who would say, well, yeah, you can be a Christian and then spend the rest of your life not living like it at all. No, you can't do that. That's, that's not what Romans 6 teaches. You can't be justified but not sanctified. You can't have Christ as Savior but not follow Him as Lord. You can't be a Christian and still be waiting for some sort of second blessing that maybe will come your way. That's a separation, bifurcation of, of life and religion. Now, it would have been normal in that day, in Paul's day, that those to whom he was writing, people had their religious life and they had their regular life. You know, you, as long as you go through some rituals at the necessary times and places and do a couple little things, hey, live the rest of life, your life any way you want to. It doesn't matter. The religions of the day wouldn't have placed demands on your Lifestyle, so long you sort of you know pinched the incense and, and made the sacrifice and did those sorts of things. And you see it in the modern world too. 
Sometimes the, this problem that we have of thinking that you can have a bifurcated Christian life, a separation, uh, comes from the fact that we often as will emphasize uh, merely accepting Christ as Savior. And many of us have grown up sort of hearing that phrase. We talked about it this week a little bit on one of the Zoom devotions in the morning. That's just the beginning. That's the start. That, that puts you regenerated. That, that gets you in Christ and united to Him. One commentary put it this way, If we emphasize a one-step profession of faith as a ticket to heaven, we invite people to be satisfied with a weak and vague conversion experience. In my generation, I remember the emphasis on accepting Jesus as Savior. And then there was another step of accepting Him as Lord, which essentially invite folks to be satisfied with the easy first step. No, you can't do that. It's one and the same. There's an old saying, if Jesus is not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. And verse 5 says, five says if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection life like His. We are saved. Salvation in G- through Jesus Christ uh, not only frees us from the guilt of sin, it frees us from the power of sin. Third point. Deliverance from the power of sin is possible when we live like who we are. It's possible when we live like who we are. In other words, how can this newness of life really change our behaviors really change our lives verses 12 13 and 14 speak to that let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to god as those who have been brought from death to life and your members present them to god as instruments for righteousness For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. In these verses, what you see is an interplay between what sometimes we refer to as the indicatives and the imperatives. An indicative is a statement, a sentence, or teaching from Scripture that gives you an indication. It's an indicative. It it teaches you. It indicates who you are. The imperative tells you what to do. And so you see a sort of interplay here. Uh, Verse 11 is a very good example of that. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then verse 12, therefore don't let it reign in your mortal body. We're commanded to behave as people who have been made new in Christ. Another way to say it is what we are must control what we do. Which is, again, another sermon for a different time, but it speaks to this whole idea of issue, uh, the, this issue of identity that we see in the world today. Who we are in Christ must control what we do and how we live. And the, the key there is verse 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now, again, earlier I said that sin has been dethroned. He says, therefore, don't let it rain. Who you are must control what we do and how we live. Christians are united to Christ in His death, in His resurrection. So live like it. Living like it brings untold blessings. Don't continue to present your, yourself to sin. The members of your body as instruments 
uh, of unrighteousness to sin. Present yourselves to God as, uh, and your members as instruments of righteousness. When you say no to sin, it brings new energy into your life. When you say yes to obedience, it strengthens your obedience muscle so that you can do it again. Sin, on the other hand, it quenches the spirit. It hardens heart. Sin blinds eyes. Sin weakens faith. Sin stunts growth. Sin, it leads to a dulled conscience. Sin disconnects us from the power source to overcome sin. Uh, to overcome sin. I like the way C.S. Lewis said it in his book, Mere Christianity, talking about this idea of saying yes to sin or no to sin and how it builds. He, he, in great typical C.S. Lewis fashion, he, he words it so, so well. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That's why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may go on, be able to go on to victories you never dreamed possible. The slightest indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a bridge or a ridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Don't let sin reign in your bodies. It's been dethroned. Don't let it get back on the throne. Put it to death. What we are must control what we do. And if you're in Christ, you are dead to sin. You have been given new life in Christ. You've been raised to life. That's the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Deliverance from guilt, the guilt of sin, and deliverance from its power as well. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would enable us to understand this double cure that we have in our union with Christ. Deliverance from the guilt of sin and deliverance from the power of sin as well. And, O oh Lord, I pray that you would enable us to present ourselves to you as those who have been brought from death life and our members to you as instruments of righteousness. O oh God, empower us, fill us, help us to this end, we pray. Through Jesus. Amen.